true lovers, what will we do? The drive-ins have disappeared. The campfires refuse to burn. The peep shows were never not a problem. And when's the last time you heard a viewfinder click? And as for poor Saturday morning, not to mention Saturday night. Oh, true lovers and fellow travelers. What are we to do? What can you do? But pitch your head to the big inky beyond and demand. Tell me a story, you son of a bitch. And as if by magic, ancient neon fires up. A campfire crackles, quarters drop and wheels turn in glorious anthem. There's one place left, true lovers. They are calling attendance. There's a place for you. But do you dare step inside? Another drink? Yes? Excellent. It is something to see all these things at once. A little fortification is required. And expected. Even I get overwhelmed sometimes. Suppose if I didn't, I wouldn't keep at it like I do. But one does not amass the largest private collection of literary devices simply because one can. I do, because it is the closest thing to collecting perfectly written sentences capturing them before they are printed and released to the wild. These objects, these devices, are the inspiration for those perfect sentences. Those words, dancing on pages. Mark Twain's Twain Marker, one of Raymond Chandler's MacGuffins, a red herring. Zadie Smith's Monkey's Paw, with extra digits. And so many more. But none compare, in import or impact, to the device I am about to show you. You'll notice there is nothing literary in this room. There are chairs and sofas, rugs, a fireplace, a fully stocked bar. Nothing literary, except above the fireplace, a rather mediocre painting of a seagull. <laughs> now there's a smile. You figured it out, haven't you? Of course you have. You're wearing your smarty pants. Well, no more ado. I'll just push this secret button and... There it is. And yes, it is. To most it would look like an ornate dueling pistol circa 19th century. But to smarty pants like you and me, we know, we know that that pistol is none other than Chekhov's gun. And yet it is also a question. For Chekhov's gun is supposed to be an axiom about dramatic expectation. If you introduce a gun in Act 1, it should go off by the end of Act 2. Yes, yes, we all know. But it is not supposed to be an actual instrument of singular death. So, how can it be both? It begs the question, when is a gun not a gun? Perhaps it would help if I told you the tale of how I encountered this literal literary device in the first place. And how I came to acquire it. I was attending the annual Edgar Awards charity auction in Duel, as a celebrity duelist, naturally. 
It's important to give back in whatever way you can. For the event, I was loaned an 18th century Irish large-bore flintlock that had once belonged to Lady Gregory. I assure you, it had not been made for a lady's hand, and yet, as the stories go, she made accurate and promiscuous use of it as a founding member of the Abbey Theatre. The lesson being, don't fuck with Irish playwrights. My opponent that day was a sweepstakes winner from amongst the nation's librarian class. They paid in for the chance to attend the dual auction, all proceeds, of course, going to charity. They had tried their best, decked out in linen suit, boater hat, and their finest mustaches. They also wore dark glasses with one dark lens over the right eye, doing its best to hide a dueling scar which peeked over the frame. And though I paid it little mind at the time, a small yet excruciatingly detailed tattoo of a seagull on their inner right wrist. Before I'd had any time to further analyze this curious contest champion, my entire attention was stolen by the unveiling of the pistol they were to use in our little charitable skirmish. It was Russian, you could tell by its cold sternness, contradicted by ostentation. The barrel, hammer, and trigger were all blue cobalt. The stock was pure ivory carved with patterns in the scrimshaw style, the grooves and lines of which were then filigreed with gold, and attached to the butt of the piece was a golden seagull's head. I should have been suspicious. I should have seen coincidence and inferred causation. I was at a charity duel put on by a mystery writer's group, but I was enthralled. I was stunned, dumbfounded, idiotic, drooling. I had never seen such an impressive device. I could think only of it and its exquisite construction, and that's not true. In the back of my mind, there was another thought, a half-remembered description from an old auction house catalog, which this pistol matched to the letter. Could it be? It couldn't be. But it might be. But would it be? It must be! A gun that once belonged to Anton Chekhov. Russian playwright, short story inflictor, and seagull fetishist. Rumor had it he acquired the pistol after it had been used in an assassination attempt against him by a disgruntled actor. The actor had become enraged at the constant rewrites occurring during rehearsals for Chekhov's first major play, titled Shut It, Nina, which would be further rewritten and eventually retitled The Seagull. Needless to say that none of this is what should be going through one's mind as they are about to engage in a duel, charity or otherwise. But, as the mind is the only organism that can be in two places at once, mine was. Through the traditional meet-and-greet, I laughed at my opponent's lame jokes while staring at their pistol. When our seconds inspected the weapons and gave approval, I fantasized about switching weapons last minute. During the ritual two-minute staring contest to decide who would have to shoot against the breeze, I lost, obsessing about the beautiful carved stock. Worst of all was when we were back-to-back. Chekhov's gun within reach. I could just turn and take it. Ten! And I was startled. Nine! When the counting began. Eight! Seven! We walked in opposite directions. I was sweating. Why was I sweating? Because I'd found a white whale, or rather, white seabird-themed firearm. A most exquisite and impossible literary device. And it must, it would be mine. If I survived to make it so, shoot each other! I'd gotten so lost in my delusions I'd forgotten to turn and fire, unlike my opponent. 
who'd reacted appropriately and lodged the pistol's ball square in my left shoulder. Pain is clarifying, and brought my two-place mind back to singularity. I took my turn, still owed despite my distraction, and I did my opponent the courtesy of removing their left eye, giving them a matching pair. Our charitable duties fulfilled, we were taken to neutral trauma tents to get patched up and changed for that evening's main event. The Secret, the secret silent, silent Auction. auction. Oh no, don't worry. It takes more than a vodka-soaked lead ball to finish me off. And at the time, I didn't feel a thing, for I was high on the painkiller of discovery. And painkillers. There is no greater time in a collector's life than when they have discovered a new object of desire and are in pursuit. It is like being on a great adventure. Plus, I'd been shot. For charity! You see, the guns that had been used in the various rounds of the charity duel were to be put up for silent auction that very evening. And my new pursuit was lot number 1895. What luck. I'd simply outbid or threaten anyone uncouth enough to get in my way. For charity. So, with the ball dug out of my shoulder and some bookbinding glue applied to the wound, I donned my ceremonial robes and garish animal mask and headed for the silent auction. What's that? What do you mean, why was I wearing ceremonial robes and a garish animal mask? Do you mean to tell me you've never attended a silent auction? You haven't. Oh, terribly sorry. I'll explain. It's quite simple. Silent auctions are usually themed, and since this auction and duel was put on by the Edgar Awards, the themes usually have to do with mystery, suspense, thrills, chills, twists. This year's theme was cults, specifically animal-themed cults from old pulp adventure stories. You know, power-hungry men dressed in robes and hoods and animal masks, performing appropriated rituals on scantily clad maidens and child sidekicks. Uh, it's uh, Sax Romer sans racism, the Met Gala without the let them eat cake, and all the racism. And all for a good cause. What was the cause? Mm, you know, that's not my area. So there I was, in electric blue robe and a hooded matching snake mask. Not sure which story I was from. I think one of old Howard's tales of brutes with bad haircuts. We bidders gathered in silence, for the silent auction is a mysterious and arcane gathering. Once assembled, no one is allowed to make a sound, not even the auctioneer. A system of weird and complicated hand gestures, and we wear these cool medallions with our numbers on them. See, our number 16. I had not come to the auction duel with any specific plan to bid. Uh, fancy would be my dowsing rod, but upon seeing that ivory pistol, I'd thrown over fancy for obsession. And when its lot was called, or rather, wildly and convolutedly gestured, I ditched obsession for Lovecraftian madness. I alone would survive to tell the tale of how I bought that gun at a charity auction. Lot number 1895, 19th century dueling pistol, ivory and gold, Russian origin, Anton Chekhov. So sparse a description for something so valuable, so important, so provocative. But it had provoked other interests besides my own. For much like that morning's duel, I had an adversary, and they were aiming for me. A hulking figure, medallion number nine, 
in a bright crimson robe, and their face hidden behind a seagull mask. There was no literary seabird cult I was aware of, maybe something from Melville's private reserve, but nothing that counted. There were too many seagulls. The gun itself, the strange tattoo on the inside of the duelist's wrists, and now this masked malcontent. I had to get to the bottom of this mystery, and the only way to do so, I had to own Anton Chekhov's gun. And the only way to do that was to emerge victorious from this bidding duel. The Grand Auctioneer, a bison-masked, purple-robed dignitary, rumored to be James Elroy, subbing in for Suzanne Collins, took the dais and held up both hands. They slowly and elegantly twisted into the signs for, The bidding shall begin now. Do I hear 100? No, they didn't. This was a silent auction. I raised my hand to signal 100. But then the seagull countered with 200. Bastard! Seagull! How dare they! They silently signaled 300. Seagull fired back 400. And here's where things got painful. The secret silent auction signs for 500 and above require the use of both hands and their respective arms. And, if you'll recall, I had been shot in my left shoulder earlier that day by an over-mustachioed duelist bearing a seagull tattoo on their inner wrist and also by Chekhov's gun. Ah! Shh! Apologies. My frustration was beginning to show when I was getting careless. The pain was bringing me close to violating the only rule of the secret silent auction. Silence! Shh! Sorry. That shitting seagull. I signaled 700. Ah! And not an inconsiderate bit of pain. But I couldn't make a sound or I'd be sunk. The seagull would make off with my treasure. But the seagull paused. The bisonic grand auctioneer tilted its massive head at the aquatic avian. The seagull phalangically stammered. Then signaled, One. Million. <gasps> Did you think we were bidding with Monopoly money? This is no game. The secret silent charity auctions of literary societies are a death sport. And sports are not a game. I signaled one million and one, and pain tore through my shoulder. I didn't know how many more bids I could make. Not because I didn't have enough money. <laughs> Heavens no. Do I look like someone who dresses up like a fictional member of a snake cult to bid on infamous literary devices? On a budget? You can't even get in the door if you don't have at least the GDP of a small to medium island nation in one of your accounts. The seagull sign signaled one million and two, and in doing so, their right sleeve slid towards the elbow, revealing their inner wrist and the detailed seagull tattoo it wore. So, it was a conspiracy, was it? Some society of the seagull was after Chekhov's gun, and they'd stop at nothing, even me, to get their filthy wings on it. The bid is at one million and two. My shoulder is tearing itself from my torso, making it excruciating for even the most minuscule bid. I could lose. I could lose Chekhov's gun because of Chekhov's gun. Which is an irony, in case you were wondering. You probably whispered to yourself in your mind's ear, How ironic. It isn't. It's just weird. But, in all this weirdness, I noticed something. The seagull was starting to sweat, pouring from the eye holes of their stupid fucking bird mask, soaking their robes. <laughs> they didn't have the money. All I had to do was outbid them, and that dramaturgical death device would be mine. But would I be able to make the necessary series of complicated signs and signals before succumbing to the pain? I must. As Samuel Beckett once said, I can't go on. I'll go on. And win that fucking auction. 
He did. He did say that. I steeled myself. I bit down on my tongue to distract from my shoulder, and so I wouldn't yelp when I did what I was about to do. I stood up. I walked to the front of the room and stood in front of the dais, the grand auctioneer hovering over me. I stared the seagull dead in their dead, beady bird eyes, and I danced. I should clarify. In the world of the secret silent auction, to dance means I will answer all bids and raise. If your opponent dances back at you, answering your answer, then we have a dance-off. The last dancer dancing declared the winner, but only if your opponent dances back. I was making a bid that seagulls don't dance. The seagulls stared birdie daggers at me, but did not move. The sweat flooded down their plastic beak, falling on the floor. A little puddle formed in front of the up-jumped pigeon. And then the seagull lunged at me! Or they would have, had they not slipped in the puddle they themselves had provided. And also, had they not been shot by Chekhov's gun. This time wielded by the Grand Auctioneer. I told you, you had to be quiet. The auction room, it should go without saying, stayed silent. As for me, I passed out. And when I awoke, I was the proud and rightful owner of Chekhov's gun. That lovely, strange gun you are now holding in your hands. And have aimed right at me. Oh dear. Mind if I have one last drink? Obliged. I assume there's a little seagull tattooed on the inside of your wrist. Do they make you get that when you join, or is it just a coincidence and you all happen to be ocean bird enthusiasts? You know what, it's not important, you don't need to answer. However, I did ask you a question earlier that you might want to answer. You can't recall? I'll refresh. When is a gun not a gun? Or to be more specific to our circumstances, when is a gun not a Chekhov's gun? Oh, it's a mind melter, I'll admit. And it really seems to be doing a number on you. Are you feeling all right? I'll take that. Wouldn't want you to damage a priceless treasure of world literature. Oh, this? Old Chekhov's gun? I mean, it is just a gun. This Chekhov's gun is just a gun. Always was, always will. But Chekhov's gun, that dramatic principle everyone with a Netflix subscription thinks they understand, it's not about fulfilling expectations. It's about economy. Economy of storytelling. Like, oh, let's say, for example, me killing you before the story started, so I'd be free to tell it. Yes, Chekhov's gun does state that if you pull a gun in Act 1, it should go off by the end of Act 2. But that gets so boring. That feels expected. And when things grow expected, Chekhov's gun becomes just a gun. And everyone starts shooting. And storytelling falls out the window. So, the answer to my question, when is a gun not a Chekhov's gun, is... When it's in your drink. <laughs> when you get to hell, tell the seagull. Nina sends her regards. Nostrovia. If you'd like to experience the Diorama's collection of illicit literary devices for yourself, just keep listening. Never stop listening.
We'll get to them all eventually. This week's Theater's Kids Nightmare was entitled Chekhov's Charity Auction. It was written, read, recorded, and wrought by Ryan McClary, which is still me. You can find the diorama on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. While you're there, why don't you subscribe and leave a rating and review? Every little help helps. You can visit our homepage at die-orama.com. And if you feel like writing, or if you have a cursed treasure to get rid of, or a bounty you want hunted, you can email us at dioramadispatch at gmail.com. The diorama will return around the penultimate week of December with a limited-time offer of Yuletide self-improvement and world domination. Until then, pour a vodka, weep for Nina, and pray Uncle Vanya isn't lurking under the bed in... The Diorama. The diorama. <laughs> <laughs>